Hello and welcome again to another episode of CISO Tradecraft. This is G. Mark Hardy and I'm pleased to be with you today to talk about identity and access management. CISO Tradecraft, as you know, is a podcast that's designed to give you the skills you need to be successful in your career and to advance in your career as a cybersecurity professional. So if you're not already doing so, follow us, connect to us on LinkedIn, and let everybody else know about us as well so we can help other people do well with their careers as well. As I said today, we're going to talk about Identity and Access Management, or IAM. Now, that's covers an awful lot, and we'll see what I can fit into into the podcast. But for those of us who are taking or considering taking or have taken a CISSP, turns out that Identity and Access Management is domain five of eight, and there's an entire set of knowledge that we should be aware of. But in addition to just the academic knowledge, we also have a functional knowledge that allows us to go ahead and utilize this type of technology and the principles in our careers uh, to be successful. I'm going to start out with the latter, that is to say, looking at the practical applications of IAM. And then we'll cover a little bit more in terms of terminology and elements, etc. So for those of you who are studying for a security certification, we'll gain a leg up and some advantage as a result of listening. First of all, let's well, start off with a definition. What do we mean by identity and access management? Gardner Group offers a definition that says it's a discipline that enables the right individuals to access the right resources at the right times for the right reasons. Okay. And I guess that that's right, so to speak. But uh, is there any other way of looking at it? Uh, Tech Target has a definition. They call IAM as a framework of business processes policies and technologies that facilitate the management of electronic or digital identities. Okay, so now we have both process policy and technology instead of just, um, well, a discipline, if you will. So we're starting to see it's more than just a plug and play. And note, though, that identity and access management is not the same thing as privileged access management. See, Gardner defines privileged access management, or PAM, as tools that discover, manage, and govern privileged accounts on multiple systems and applications. Now, what happens is, is that, and of course it gives controls and monitoring and stuff like that. We're gonna focus on IAM. Probably do another podcast on privilege access management because that's also an extremely important element of what we're doing as cybersecurity professionals. Uh, but for right now, let's avoid scope creep and stay on topic. A couple weeks ago, I heard somebody say something. I read this somewhere. And uh, the earliest, um, I, don't know, I, I guess it goes back a little while, but not all that while, was this quote, identity is the new perimeter. Think about that for a minute. Identity is the new perimeter. We no longer have everybody behind a firewall. We no longer have the fortress mentality of what um, Bill Cheswick had described back in the 1990s, talking about AT&T networks is a hard, crunchy shell surrounding a soft, chewy center. Well, we, we don't have that hard, crunchy shell anymore between the use of cloud computing, mobile devices, bring your own devices, collaborating with our business partners, creating client portals, etc. The idea of a perimeter is pretty much gone. And as you know, if you've been listening, you've heard our broadcast on zero trust, and that's one way that we can go ahead and deal with it, but that's sort of an extreme. 
But if we think about identity as being the perimeter, what that suggests is that this intersection of people, devices, applications means that we can adjudicate that and therefore manage it effectively based on identity. You see, as I said, there really is no more perimeter anymore. It's, uh, well, it's gone. And since we shifted from the firewalls as a primary defense to distributed architectures, we can't hurt our cloud behind the same firewall that we have our, our applications and our systems at our enterprise. And unless you're running legacy systems, that traditional fortress mentality no longer applies. So as I mentioned, our Zero Trust episode, record that back on the 21st of March, 2021. You can learn a lot more about Zero Trust if you desire. But here is a key question I would ask you as a CISO. How confident are you in the truth of an asserted identity? Think about it. Identities are assertions, right? Aren't they? I mean, I tell you I'm G. Mark Hardy, and I assert that, and I'm pretty confident of it, but I really haven't given you a whole lot of proof. And so when somebody comes to you and says, hey, I'm user X, or I'm application Y with these privileges, or I'm going out as uh, this particular um, agent operating on behalf of some other process, how do we know that that's really the one? And then consider that your identity, because it's an assertion, is trusted even if you're not the one using it. Isn't that what gets us into trouble? When we look at the phishing episodes that take place and people going ahead and coughing up credentials because they think they're logging into the Microsoft website, well, it's a nice little picture of Rio de Janeiro and a nice little skyline. And oh, wow, that looks like Microsoft. They don't see evilhacker.ru up at the top because the average user isn't looking there. And there goes their credentials. And of course, then that becomes essentially the identity that someone's going to be operating with. But we need to find out a better way to do this because otherwise we're going to continue to have our users get fished. We're going to have identity compromise. And as we've seen an awful lot of the news, all this ransomware that's taking place usually starts with a compromised account. I mean, if you think about it, how else are you going to get in there, right? It doesn't just beam in like Mr. Scott from Star Trek and zoom, there we go, there's ransomware, it's on your server. It has to be invited in. And usually it gets invited in because somebody does something dumb. But then again, the thing that you do something dumb, some process is going to kick off and it's going to assert the identity of some particular user or process and the like, and that's where we get into trouble. Like anything else, it helps to have a framework for organizing our activities. And identity and access management has some framework components. One of them is going to be the types of systems that we're going to use. Traditionally, we'll find things such as a single sign-on. And what a single sign-on is going to be is you have a one big, long, ideally, complicated password or maybe even a passphrase and then that single sign-on is then used to provide access to a repository of encrypted user credentials or system credentials, which they can then be utilized. And these are available with respect to um, a lot of commercial products that are out there. Uh, I use um, LastPass, but there's another 
there's plenty of other vendors that are out there as well. Some of them uh, have lost or given up their free uh, usage on the smaller ends. And so some people are migrating to other applications. I'm not going to really recommend brand X over brand Y. I don't really have the research to get into that. And quite honestly, you ought to be doing your own. In any case, the concept of a single sign-on is a process where one registration accesses a lot of others. Of course, it also introduces a single point of failure, which is why we want to really make sure that that access is correct. The second one is what we call 2FA or two-factor authentication. And when we talk about authentication factors, typically we're talking about something I know, like a password, something I have, like a token, or um, something that I am, like a biometric. Now, there's a fourth authentication factor that's fairly new. It's only in the last few years it's been practical. Can you think of what I'm talking about? Something I know, something I have, something I am. The fourth factor is somewhere I am. With the ubiquity of sensors for GPS or even being able to triangulate on things such as SSIDs, a lot of apps will validate your legitimacy based upon where you are. I know my banking apps insist that I turn on my location services, and that's used as part of that fraud algorithm to say, hey, is this person operating in the United States or are they operating in a um, Eastern European nation that is known for committing a lot of banking fraud? Not picking on anybody in particular, but you get the general idea. If I'm not where I'm supposed to be, then they can use that as part of that but the two-factor authentication is going to involve usually something I know, like a password, and then some other credential. We can extend that what we call MFA, and multi-factor authentication is a generic term, and it basically means you can use two or more. Um, back when I was in the military and I had access to some sensitive stuff as part of my job, I had three-factor authentication, which meant that I had an access card that I had to scan to get in the door. Then I had to enter in a PIN. And then I went through a little man trap, and then you into the building. And then when it gets down to go into the secure area, sort of the holy of holies, if you were, scan the card again, but now it's biometric. Put your fingerprint on there. And then if you've passed all of these things, something you have, something you know, something you are, then you get access to the room that has all the very, very sensitive information in it. The idea being is that MFA gives you better protection. Now, if you think about it, you get a huge increase in security going from single factor to two factor. Passwords are stolen all the time, even if it's a credential. Credit card, think about it. Although credit cards technically use all three, something you have, the credit card itself, something you know, the number, something you are, that signature on the back. Has anybody ever had a card turned on because your signature doesn't match? I mean, really, nobody seems to care. And it's tough to prove anyway. And as a result, we have a spectacular amount of credit card fraud. But when you go and you look at something like an ATM card, which requires two-factor authentication, you need the card itself and its PIN. You can't just walk up to an ATM and say, ah, I left my card at home, but I remember my number. Can I get my money? Uh, no. But you can do that with a credit card. Just go online, click, 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 card not present. And so MFA gives us that. And then, as I said, this is beyond the scope of what we want to get into, but privileged account management where we're going to go ahead and do special things for accounts that have higher levels of privilege. That's a big deal, uh, critical control four uh, and things such as that. And as a result, we can look at these as our frameworks to say, what about our system types? 
Another element of our framework is how do we deploy? We could deploy on-premises. We can simply say, hey, these are our solutions, they're on our systems, and we're, we're done with it. Or utilize a third-party vendor, somebody who is going to be able to provide um, that for us, maybe even identity as a service. Interesting concept to say, hey, prove your credentials and you come back with that. I know that ID.me is one of those services and I can access certain sites based upon the fact that it says, hey, we will validate you against some database that we have access to, but the general public should not have access to. And then we'll give you a ticket or a credential to say, yeah, you are who you say you are. Go ahead and you are entitled to utilize this particular resource. There are cloud-based subscription models, which suggests that that information will be able to get us into cloud activities. And of course, we've covered that and we'll continue to cover that because cloud has become an extremely important part of a lot of our enterprise. And then some combinations of those that should be hybrid. Another framework element you might want to consider is the components of our identity and access management. And of course, first and foremost would be the identification of individuals. How do I map an identification credential to a human? After all, it's the people we care about. If there is something illegal or improper being done, courts operate on humans, not on computers. I have never heard of a computer being considered guilty of a cybercrime and being sentenced to have its clock speed stepped down 50% and have half of its memory chips removed for 30 days. No, we do it as identification of individuals. Then identification of the roles and the assignment of those roles to individual. Role-based access control is a whole lot easier than individually trying to figure out what each and every person might need. And therefore, with our back, what I can do is say, hey, this is your particular role in the organization. I've predefined carefully what those access rights are. And now when somebody gets assigned to this accounting department or that research department or that job, simply select what their role is and it pre-populates with the correct roles and identifications that are needed. Of course, we need to add, remove, and update individuals and roles. And one of the problems here tends to be the residual effect. Someone is given access to something, they're given additional credentials, additional access rights, and the project concludes and nobody takes away those rights. And then over time, privileges become an aggregate. They get built up and they build up and they build up, kind of like uh, um, you know, calcium on the inside of some sort of a pipe, but it's privileges. Now, one bank I talked to has an interesting approach. Every year, when they require all their people to take their annual vacation, when you come back from your time off, which you have to physically get out of the building, so if you're doing any scams, they can spot it, you start out with zero privilege. They, they nuke you back to the Stone Age and they rebuild you from scratch based upon these known profiles. Meaning if you had picked up anything over the year and it, they forgot to take it away or didn't take it away or you got something you shouldn't, it gets rebaselined. I like that. And that's, I think, a really good best practice. Another one is to assigning uh, the access levels to these individual groups. And then, of course, we want to protect our sensitive data within the system. The whole idea about doing identity and access management is to make sure, as we heard from that Gartner definition at the very beginning, where we enable the right individuals to access the right resources at the right times for the right reasons, that we can do so by protecting that information. And then lastly, when we look at terms of elements that we might have in our framework, we want to look at the IAM systems themselves. 
You need to capture and record user login information and having that auditable is helpful. Manage an enterprise user identity database. And one of the things you might want to make sure is do you have an enterprise user database that has an audit trail that includes all of the modifications and deletes? Because sometimes investigations show that an intrusion or a compromise or a lost credential didn't take place in the last 72 hours. It might have taken place weeks or even months earlier. And if somebody creates an account, uses it to pivot, turns, disables that, creates another one, turns it off, disables it, they've effectively blinded the forensic trail if you don't have access to all that. So one of the things you want to ensure then is your identity and access database has pretty much an permanent record. You can keep track of anything that was added, modified, or deleted in terms of members or privileges. And then lastly, of course, have some way to orchestrate the assignment and removal of those access privileges such that it is done in a logical, understandable manner and people don't just have to guess at what to do or they're winging it or let me get down at the command line interface, click, 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 click. I can remember one organization where some emergency came up and I needed access to something. They said, hold on a second. Boom, there, you've got it. Well, not only did they give me access to the one resource I needed, they pretty much gave me access to everything. Okay, well, fine. We go handle the emergency. I might need everything, but at the end of the emergency, guess what? Now there is probably another emergency and another and another and another. And those access rights never got backed out. Now I didn't exploit them. That's not who I am. But the point was, it was a illustration of the fact that we need to have something that's a repeatable process that is like, make it less likely to make mistakes. If we're going to authenticate, that is to say, our identity is proven with some form of authentication. Identity, as I said, is a claim. Identity and access management, I want to authenticate. Authentication is validating that claim, right? And typically what we use, the historic way, has been a unique password. Single factor, something I know. And then we have uppercase, lowercase numbers, and special characters, and we have to go ahead and take a look at it. And any of us who are familiar with the XKCD, Randall Monroe cartoon, have known about the password uh, cartoon that they have uh, that, uh, you know, correct horse battery stable. I think it's XKCD 936. And I think we even talk about XKCD 936 compliant passwords. And his whole point there is that when we create and establish passwords, we are looking for a lot of entropy. Entropy meaning a large number of possible combinations to resist against, well, a brute force attack. And although you might say, well, our system will lock somebody out after three tries. If they steal your encrypted password database, even though they're hashes, they got all the time in the world to bang against their own local copy. And you're going to light off a whole array on that and eventually get it. Now, as an aside, a brute force is the only attack that is guaranteed to work. Guaranteed to work. The only problem is, depending upon the size of the key space, it might take 100 billion trillion years, at which point it works, but doesn't matter, at least not for humans. And therefore, what we want to do is we want to drive that work factor off into the stratosphere. However, users have a hard time remembering these big, long, complicated passwords. And when we say you got to change them every 30 days, what do they do? 
Well, we'll put a one at the end or a two or a three. And we really haven't made things a whole lot more secure because humans don't tend to store random access, uppercase, lowercase numbers and special characters. We write them on yellow sticky, stick them under the keyboard. Uh, as they say, pick your favorite pet's name, uh, put a number one and an exclamation point at the end. Now I've got all the uh, required things. But better off, as they'd said previously, is the concept of a, a single sign-on. A single sign-on utilizing a tool where you have one master password. There's only one big thing you got to remember and either one of two things. You can either create your password and then let it be memorized or a superior solution, in my opinion, is a well-populated system that knows, quote-unquote, because it's been programmed in, what is the maximum password length and what are the complexity rules of every location, every application or service or website that you're going to? And then it will say, hey, I'm going to pre-populate your password with 24 upper or lower number special characters, if that's the maximum that's allowed. No human's going to remember that, but don't worry. It's remembered. All you have to do is remember your single sign-on password. And if it's used in that way, where each application or web login for that identity claim, which is validated with a password, is using the maximum complexity rules, then you have extraordinarily strong strength against somebody guessing that. But the problem with, of course, single passwords are once it's guessed, that person assumes the identity and off they go. Another type of digital authentication is a pre-shared key or PSK. Sometimes we see that in our Wi-Fi's. We see Wi-Fi, WPA2, PSK, and the pre-shared key basically means to go look at the whiteboard and see what the password is for the Wi-Fi, and that's a pre-shared key. And that'll differ than enterprise mode where you go ahead and you authenticate each individual device separately. Let's not worry about that. That's out of scope for this talk. But the concept of a pre-shared key, i.e. a Wi-Fi password, is kind of even less secure than a unique password because everybody gets the same password. Another way we could do digital authentication is biometrics. Fingerprint scan works pretty well. I have a uh, ThinkPad that has a little fingerprint reader. When I log in, I get to the point where you just scan my fingerprint. You get a little bit lazy after a while, and then when it says, oh, your finger's dirty or whatever, you have to enter your, in your password or your PIN. It's like, I don't even remember what that was. I had to go dig it out because we get used to it. But fingerprints tend to be pretty unique. Facial recognition. You'll see that now with cell phones. Look into my eye, as the phone would say, and says, yep, that looks like you. The pan geometry, fingers are a little bit different length than everybody. Retina scans, iris scans, with apologies to science fiction movies and things such as that, uh, we find out that uh, they actually do work pretty well. Uh, voice recognition being able to say, is this a person? Even signature analysis saying, does that look like your handwriting? Well, some of these things like signature analysis go back a long way, but how many people are actually writing? Well, in tablets, we now have that where you have write something and it gets recognized. All of those represent ways of doing biometrics. And there's other things as well. Heat signatures are coming up with other stuff. Um, not quite at the point where, uh, please place your finger on the little needle sampler and we will take a bit of your DNA and check you. There is a little bit of caution I offer in biometrics is biometrics don't really give you good duress protection. That is to say, if you've got your iPhone protected with your fingerprint 
and some bad guy grabs you and wants to empty out your Bitcoin wallet or your ATM, whatever else you have there that's of value, all they have to do is grab you by the back of the neck and force you to go ahead and put your face in front of the camera or push your finger on there. So about two years ago, maybe it was longer than that, Apple changed things a little bit. So if you take the power key and you press it rapidly five times, pink, 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 it brings up a little screen saying, do you want to call an emergency number? And oh, by the way, that has just disabled biometrics. You have to now log in with your PIN or password or swipe pattern, and then you can go with biometrics the next time. The idea being is if you see some bad guy coming at you, click, 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 you can either rapidly call 911 or grab the phone away from you. They can't hold your face in front of your finger. Now, I don't know about somebody holding a knife to you and saying, enter in the pin or you're dead. It's like, yeah, okay, well, that's out, out of scope. But you can start to see how biometrics provide digital authentication. When we have these two-factor authentications or multi-factor authentication, typically, as you say, it's a username and password. But I remember my bank had a username and then a password and then a secret, and it would say pick for one of these four secrets and things such as that. And that was basically not three-factor authentication. That was one factor three times. Something you know, something you know, and something you know. That doesn't count. It's got to be something you know, something you have, something you are, and someplace you are. And now the two-factor authentication often could be done with like a push SMS message system or a token that you have or co-generating software. So you have hard tokens and soft tokens. Secure ID has the hard tokens, and now we can have the actual software tokens. Microsoft has an authenticator. I have other authenticators that I run on my devices when I go to log in. I have set up for my enterprise MFA for every account. All of my users, from an intern all the way up to the chief security officer, moi, who has access to all the keys, has to go through multi-factor authentication. In addition, I've made a requirement that every tool that we utilize, whether it is through Azure going into the cloud to go into the cloud management and the console, going into a vendor console, such as Carbon Black or Red Canary or some of the other companies that I utilize, also require MFA. That's my policy and I make everybody stick to it. There's only a couple of people that need to do it, but everything I access requires MFA because of the fact that a, as a chief information security officer, I often have super user access wherever I go. And then B, I'm going to walk the walk. I'm going to say, hey, I can live with this. So anybody complains, that's too hard. Guess what? It's not too hard. I do it all the time. Another way, as I said, with regard to the weakness, perhaps, of the SMS, and this has happened in the past, is that there is a chance that that SMS codes can be hijacked. Not don't know what you might think, but if you know how it works, it's social engineering of the telephone company. I use T-Mobile, for example, and someone would call up T-Mobile and said, hey, uh, this is uh, G. Mark Hardy, and my phone number is 555-1212, and I just got a brand new phone, and I got a new SIM. Could you help me get going? Well, that's a little bit too straight up the middle. So you start chatting a little bit, and it says, hey, how you doing? Yeah, hey, wow, you sound like you're 
but from the hill country up in Texas. Well, I'm from the hill country in Texas, blah, 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 blah. And this, you can find some great videos online, some nice little social engineering hacks they were done at DEF CON a couple of years ago uh, with the one reporter and the lady went ahead and within a couple minutes had taken over his telephone and got the account changed and everything else like that just by playing a crying baby in the background and acting like a really stressed newlywed. Oh, I can't believe my husband did this to me. Oh, would you let your husband do that? No, of course he wouldn't do that. We need to fix this. Can you help me with this? Blah, 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 blah. Therefore, be careful about the SMS push because the hack on that involves somebody social engineering somebody from the phone company and saying, hey, I got a new uh, SIM card and can you help me change it to my new telephone? All right. Think about that. All right. What else have we got? Behavioral authentication, keystroke dynamics. That had been around a long time. I remember back in the mid 80s. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm dating myself, but as my wife would say, nobody else would. Uh, go back in the mid 80s, I was working with a major investment bank and they had behavioral analytics set up already for the keystroke dynamics. Now the investment bank had people moving a ton of money and therefore most people have a typing pattern. I took typing class in eighth grade. I got to the point where I could easily type well over hundred words a minute. Um, I used to joke, I'd make a great secretary if I had better legs. That's probably politically incorrect now. Apologize for anybody who thinks about that. But the point was, is that it's coming very handy for me in my career doing security and doing computers is that I can type extremely quickly and very accurately just because of years and years and years of practice. Now, maybe 20 years from now, everything's voice activated or brain activated and it's a useless skill. But for now, if somebody were to hunt and peck, my brother-in-law types with three fingers on each hand. And he goes super fast, click, 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 but he doesn't use finger four and five. That's just him. And it's like, okay, uh, that has a different pattern to it. The mouse use characteristic. Some people slide their mouse left and right or up and down. Kind of like Andre Agassi saying, hey, I got to you know, lick your tongue to the left or the right before you serve. I can see where you're going. And other people do that. Or we can basically, they were using artificial intelligence. We're going to validate that against predefined baselines. We're going to learn. And if you listen to last week's episode of artificial intelligence and machine learning, you can get a whole lot more detail on that. See, all these episodes do support each other and string together. And then lastly, of course, device recognition. Can I do an endpoint security management so I can actually have some agent on the end here? It can go more than just the MAC address, which is going to be unique, but I can have some other unique identifier in there. If I've had uh, trusted platform modules or TPM on my Laptops, I can go ahead and query those absolutely to go ahead and make sure that this is the device that I trust. Or have my own BYOD policies where I have a way to do that. Gartner Group, and if you're familiar with Gartner Group, they're a thought leadership and market um, representation company. They tell you who's out there. They're, they're key, well, one of the key products, but the one most of us are familiar with are something called the Magic Quadrant. And the Gartner Magic Quadrant is also kind of helps to define industry segments. If Gartner says you're competing in this space, but you think you're really in that space, guess what? <laughs> you're in this space. But Gartner has that much push or pull, depending upon which end you're at. Anyway, a Magic Quadrant represents a two-by-two -two grid of ability to execute and completeness of vision. And those who have a full ability to execute, that is to say a big robust solution, that is a scale to a gigantic organization, and complete vision, having all these really cool features, gets in the upper right quadrant called a leader 
as compared to a challenger or a visionary or one of the other little uh, blocks and things such as that. And if you're a leader, then, well, congratulations, you're in the magic quadrant. Now, it's interesting, if you look at the Gartner magic quadrants, you can go to Gartner.com and try to download one of these things. And you can for the price of $1,995 US. Seriously? Yeah, two grand. But yeah, you can get all the time if you look at the ads when you type in Gartner Magic Quadrant IAM. And those ads are for companies who finished in the Magic Quadrant and bought the reprint rights or the resale rights from Gartner so that they can use that as part of their marketing effort. And then when you click on one of those, let's say, give us your name, your email address, your phone number, your company size, blah, blah, blah. So they can follow up with a marketing effort and then you get access to the report. In the most recent report, 2020, and that was done in May, and so we should expecting a 2021 report probably in June, July, August sometime coming up in 2021, but they identified six companies as leaders, Microsoft, Ping Identity, Okta, OneLogin, ForgeRock. Okay, that's five. Sorry about that. And some of them we've heard of, like Microsoft and others we might not have, but that suggests that the analysts at Gartner has taken a good, strong look at it. Now, what's interesting is although this is not privileged account management, the leader in privileged account management, if you look at that Gartner report, is CyberArk, and that company is listed in the identity access management as a challenger, which means they're just to the left of that magic quadrant, which is pretty cool for a company that focuses on privilege access management to say that you're also that great at the whole thing. So some of these companies have some really robust capabilities out there. Now, Gartner points out strategic planning assumptions that they included in last year's report. By 2024, half of all workforce access management implementations will, native, will leverage native, real-time user and entity behavior analytics. It's called UEBA, user and entity behavior analytics. And they'll provide continuous adaptive risk and trust assessment, C-A-R-T-A, CARTA which is going to be a major increase from only about 10% today. Here's another Gartner prediction. By 2024, driven by cost optimization exercises, 30% of all new purchasing for access management solutions will be the best fit as composed to best in class. What do you mean by best fit instead of best in class? Well, best in class is, hey, you're in the Gartner Magic Quadrant. But does that mean that anybody who's not in the Gartner Magic Quadrant is garbage? No, these are awesome vendors with spectacular products that are more oriented toward different specific areas or niches. And you may say, that's my best fit. And oh, by the way, these companies might be a little bit better in pricing. They might be more flexible in their terms and conditions. There might be a very, very good reason to consider firms that are not landed in the magic quadrant themselves. And one other thing I saw that was in their prediction by 2024, at least one access manager vendor will introduce a converged offering that will provide market competitive functionality in access management, identity governance and administration, and privileged access management. Now, my guess is going to be based upon where I see the PAM companies that were dropped into the IAM Gartner Quadrant, that, that may be CyberArk, but we'll see. I mean, I don't know. I can't predict the future that accurately. Uh, if I were really good at predicting the future, I wouldn't be working so hard. I would have known when to buy and when to sell my Bitcoin and when to buy and sell Apple and everything else like that. Okay. I said I would cover a little bit of a, uh, terms and things like that. And 
And those last two terms I mentioned, the UEBA, I want to make sure that you're aware of them because I hadn't really known them before I did the research for this episode, but I thought that if you're aware of it, it helps you make more sense. So when you see it go by, you know exactly what they're talking about. The first one was the User and Entity Behavior Analytics, or UEBA. These are analytics to identify behavior that deviates from the norm for a particular user. And therefore, you can gain an understanding when and where an account or session has been hijacked. UEBA, User and Entity Behavior Analytics, going to become more and more important because it requires us building up a knowledge base. So what does that say from a privacy perspective? If you're tracking every last keystroke, mouse move, and if you got your camera on, biometric activity, that, of course, may introduce interesting convergence, conflict, with privacy regulations, but I don't know yet. And we'll see where that goes. But if you hear UEBA or you're concerned about, hey, how come you didn't know that that was unusual? See, my bank does that. If I hop on a plane and I show up over in some other part of the world that I'm not usually going to be. Now, I, I like to give them credit and say, well, hey, I told the credit card side that I'm going to be operating in a different country. But you know what? I bet those two systems don't talk to each other. There's you know, stovepipes of excellence. But in any case, the fact that I'm no longer in the U.S., but I'm in some place, particularly if it's known for high amount of fraud, could trip positive and then cause some additional concern as to are you really there. Interestingly enough, and out of scope for this talk, is that in the credit card world, the United States is considered high risk to Europeans because we have the chip and signature instead of chip and pin. So everybody's dangerous spot may be somebody else's home. The other thing to think about in terms of understanding is a term called CARTA. I mentioned that a moment ago. Continuous Adaptive Risk and Trust Assessment. I found the earliest reference to that to Gartner in 2017, and they listed that as one of their security projects for 2019. So here we are now where it's a little bit more mature. People have been working on it for a few years. What is this? Quote, security in which security is adaptive everywhere, all the time. This requires CISOs to establish the business value of IT assets as agreed upon by business stakeholders and the risks associated with them to emphasize the importance of focusing on those assets. Additionally, organizations must understand network topology and any changes to IT infrastructure. Close quote. All right, that's from Gartner. Now, CARTA approach to cybersecurity risk management includes a number of, of different elements. And one of them is 100% device visibility and automated control. Are you there yet? Well, maybe that's a good objective to get to. 100% visibility, all your devices. Critical control number one, or I should say CIS control, because that's what we call it. Uh, continuous monitoring, assessment, and remediation of cyber and operational risk. That's the emphasis on continuous, as compared to checker credentials at the door, and then in you go, and then do whatever you like. Micro-segmentation to contain breaches. Limit lateral movement and damage. In any case, that is a good idea to do. Take a lesson from the Navy when they build watertight compartments in their seagoing vessels. You don't want to build your ship like the Titanic. They thought it would be great, but they were a little bit, well, lazy. They only did the bulkheads up to a certain point saying, hey, you know what? The water's only going to flood so high and stop. The engineers didn't factor into the fact you might get a big hole ripped in the side. 
And then as one fills up all the way to the top, it pours over the wall like an ice cube tray being filled up and glug, 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 and down it goes. You got to wait till James Cameron to tell us the rest of the story. But is our network like ice cube trays? Or do we have this micro-segmentation where breaches can't spread very far? It's extra work, but it's important. Another thing for Carta, technologies and products from multiple vendors. Well, in a way, you don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket, as they say. But I have found out that I'm relying more and more on Microsoft for my enterprise. First of all, if Microsoft goes down, I'm host. Because we have the whole Microsoft 365 suite, Word, Excel, Outlook, etc., PowerPoint. And then I'm addition, and this is kind of parenthetical, I have found that the Windows Enterprise Defender, Microsoft Enterprise Defender, is perfectly adequate. In fact, more than adequate for my enterprise. And if you have E5 licenses, you can get some spectacular security from Microsoft. So although it's suggested multiple vendors, you might get a buy on there if you're all a Microsoft shop. New levels of multi-vendor orchestration and process response automation. The automation and the process and response automation is a big deal. I utilize a third party because I can't be watching my devices 24 by 7. And if something goes off, they're supposed to respond to me within a service level agreement and let me know that something's going on. And I got a call literally yesterday from one of our senior people who said, I've seen some strange behavior on my machine. Uh, specifically, when I go ahead and Outlook and I go to attach a file, it usually shows you the most recent files you've seen. It's got a whole bunch of really old files in here that I haven't looked at in a while. Could somebody maybe be logging into my account and looking at stuff? Good question. Well, I did two things. Number one is I went ahead and notified our third party, hey, go look into this box. And then the thing is I checked my own machine and you know what? That's a feature. I found stuff I hadn't looked at in a year and a half and I know it because it's my machine. For some reason, the most recent version of Microsoft Update Tend, and I don't remember it from before that, and it seemed to kind of dig these things out of the archives. In any case, I came back and said, I don't think there's anything. And this third-party monitoring service came back and said, we can't find anything either. But it was worth running the trap line to make sure. Also, discover posture assess discovery, posture assessment, and remediation control of physical and virtual devices, as well as cloud infrastructure and workloads. Yeah, we got to extend across all of that not just our own local devices, our virtual devices, and now the cloud. Then lastly, effective security management of agentless Internet of Things devices and cyber-physical operational technology systems. Pioneer Pipeline, can we say something? Although oh, we're still waiting for the details to come out, but from what I had heard in the initial reports, it was not OT, it was IT. And the rumor is, and I hate, I don't like doing rumors, um, so let me just not go with the rumor. Let's just go with the stuff that was reported that said the pipeline itself was not interrupted. However, it was the IT systems that support the business that had the ransomware problem. Well, wow, we've used up the whole time. So I'm not going to go give you a big, long list of terms and everything else like that. Maybe we'll say that for another idea when we're doing CASSP preparation. But in summary, if we look at identity and access management, we'll find out that's a critical component of your security arsenal and your strategy. And it does map to the CIS control set. Uh, version 7.1, control five, secure configuration for hardware and software. Identity access management, yeah, that makes sense. Control 11, secure configuration for network defenses. Yep, that makes sense. Control 12, 
Boundary defense. Oh, absolutely. And control 16, account monitoring and control. Now, quick aside here is that version 8 of the CIS controls is released on the 18th of May, 2021. And looking at the sneak previews, because I'm recording this just a couple days beforehand, the 20 controls are now down to 18. With 153 safeguards that are indicated in there, it's a reorganized, re-architected approach. Data protection has been moved from control 13 up to number three. And... Uh, we're adding a service provider management control in there as well. And what'll be interesting is to see what this new looks like. By the way, the SANS Institute, and as I mentioned, uh, I've had the privilege to serve as a principal instructor there, uh, is debuting the Security 440 course of CIS critical controls on the 13th of May. And Security 566 implementing and auditing the CIS critical controls on the 24th of May. Man, how do they know beforehand? because these authors are deeply involved in helping develop the next generation of security control sets that are gonna help us. So bottom line is a robust identity and access management program will help make your job more effective, your life easier, you're less likely to see bad guys get into your enterprise, you're more likely to have a better handle on what's happening, and hopefully as a result of this, you've got a better understanding of some of the terms and technologies and terminologies that we might encounter. So this again is G. Mark Hardy for CISO Tradecraft. We thank you for your attention. Again, please go ahead and follow us so we can go ahead and let you know when we've got new episodes and things. Tell your friends about it and implement these ideas so that you do better in your chosen career. Until next time, stay safe and have a great day.